And welcome back. Cheryl Jones with us. George Nori here. Cheryl, so what's his target date for getting this stuff rolling? Uh, it, it, there's no definite date yet, but it's somewhere between the end of 24 and 25, and that's because there are so many different steps in the process um, as you go along. It's like a stair step. You can't get to the one above until you go through the one, be, uh, through the one below. But um, they, uh, they, he says that they are pretty much uh, on target with getting it out uh, within months. You do know I'm going to assign you to take one of those little trips. <laughs> it may be a little trip. <laughs> I, I, I may be the one that hovers on the ground. <laughs> he was talking about it hovering only about five feet or so, too. Well, yeah, but he's... Hovering. That's just... that's Yeah, that's in the... that's. That could be takeoff or landing or anywhere where you didn't have anything but complete flat. And I think that um, what they're hoping in, in the beginning is that this will be used very, very uh, carefully and uh, in areas where there's not a lot of congestion in the beginning. Um, now, there are computers aboard and sensors and the cameras and all of the things that, that advanced technology brings but still, again, it's another it's a it's another craft in the air, and um, so it, it is something that we're not used to. And those of us who are a little more hesitant will and, and don't have the money for it will just be watching from the ground and and uh, waiting to see what happens and hoping for the best. But at least they do have a ballistic parachute on board, and it floats. Well, those are smart ideas, but uh, i got to tell you, I'm concerned about the traffic jams. I really uh, am. Yes, but I don't know that they're counting on all that many. Now, there are helicopters, uh, you know, in the air, as we know, and there are uh, agencies. There's NASA that's interested and other government agencies and law enforcement and that sort of thing with rescue agencies. Um, so we will... See how it all unfolds. I don't. I don't think that they think it's going to be uh, that many people actually consuming that airspace. So we'll see. It's all. It's all new territory. Do you ever see the day where UPS will deliver with this stuff? Well, that's a possibility. Um, and and a lot of see. This is a personal. Um, flying car, a two-seater. A two-seater, right. And some of them are cargo uh, craft, and some are air taxis, um, like in China. China, you know, is uh, coming along, but they have less restrictions as well. So I think it would be interesting to watch and see what happens in all these other countries that are doing the same thing. Well, let's go to the phones. Bud's driving in Texas. Welcome to the program. Hey, Bud, let's get us started. Uh, am I on? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, I don't want to sound like a damp rag, but uh, I like the concept. I'm on my way from Oshkosh. There's a, there's a flying car there coming out called the Switchblade. But anyway, this vehicle's like that. There's a good side. I like the uh, concept. They can rescue with it, but just like the Internet, the bad guys can get a hold of this, and that's not good. So some restrictions need to come out because uh, you can go into a yard and pick up a prisoner. Or you could uh, steal stuff with it. 
So let's see if we can get some uh, right credentials for people that fly these things. And I'll take uh, uh, whatever comments you have off the air. Thank you very much for allowing me to talk. Thank you, bud. What, what about the downside of some of this? Cheryl? Well, there is a downside, just as with everything else. And I asked him about that, and he said they were they had a lot of security, just as uh, all aircraft do, and they've they've taken all all uh, measures to be sure that the aviation is uh, protected from cyber attacks, and they have backup protection. And uh, there is still ongoing. Um, efforts with the FAA and NASA and other um, government agencies involved in local and higher le- uh, national levels to work these things out. So I'm sure there will be more regulations and more things to come. It's just a work in progress. Joe in Long Island, New York, east of the Rockies. Hey, Joseph, go yeah, ahead. Hi, Cheryl. Before I get to the flying cars, uh this LifeSiteNews.com uh, has some follow-up articles on the WHO and uh, their issues, so I know you were interested in that, so that's LifeSiteNews.com. But there's a couple of issues with these flying cars. One would be uh, the eyesight. Uh, most people that have, say, an extra couple hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars tend to be these computer people or a lawyer or something that's doing close-up work and probably doesn't have keen enough eyesight to be able to see from the sky and maneuver in different lighting conditions. And as far as, like, old shows, uh, they had on Hulu the old Speed Racer shows, and that depicted... Speed Racer as doing a little flying on uh, over some cliffs. And, uh, you know, then you had Evil Knievel. Uh, didn't he try and fly uh, something over a, a canyon or something like that? So I guess there's some precedence for the idea. And I, I think, like, it might be good in a place like Alaska to try it out rather than, you know, a, a metro area. To start I think with. Evil came down in a parachute, too, didn't he? That vehicle he was in? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's what happened. You there, Cheryl? Yeah, yeah, well, that's a good, yeah, and thank you for that that information. And, yes, uh, we do need to keep up with the WHO now that you mentioned that because that is something that's happening very fast when nobody's paying attention to it, and that is a uh, pandemic treaty that um, they're trying to rush through and take our sovereignty and all of our control and, with with all of that, that's a that's a whole other topic. But thanks for bringing that up. Yes, people do need to pay close attention to what's happening there. Uh, yeah, they, they they do have the cameras, and, and if someone is not doesn't have the the uh, sufficient eyesight to to handle that, I don't think they would be a likely customer. Um, everybody knows their own limitations. What's your take on the uh, UFO hearing that they had Wednesday? Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? Um, what I'd like to know is, you know, all all the people who are vetted in, in anything across the board, I mean, we face this in every issue and every level of everything that has control over us, who vets the vetters and what kind of vetting uh, is there? And that's not to say that anyone, you know, who's supposedly vetted and all um, um, <laughs> above board and all that is not what they say they are, but we have no no way of vetting everything that needs to be vetted. Then on the other hand, 
uh, who is going to be um, who's going to be in control of the information? I feel like we're inching more and more toward control information classified. You could see the frustration with uh, con- uh, um, Congressman uh, Tim Burchett and uh, Matt Gates and others um, on the uh, Oversight Committee, where they were they've just been beating their heads against the wall. So. I'm just wondering what it's all about, where it's leading to, and I wonder why there's not been more effort from the very beginning, which I believe the first task force um, uh, hearing was in June of um, 2021. I'm wondering why there hasn't been more effort to go back in history and uh, study uh, and analyze all of the information that has been brought forth over the past seven-plus decades. It's probably been done clandestinely. Right, right, right. So, and then, again, it's just like uh, has been, like, you know, the point that's been brought up by by those in charge of the committee. Um, you know, where's the money going, uh, coming from? We know it's coming from taxpayers to study all of this, and they say they've been studying it for so long now. Um, and what is it being spent on? And if it's called a, a classified uh, area or national security there you go. There's no way to confirm or no accountability. So it's a frustrating situation. And there's, you know, we, we are just told what someone has seen or what they're, what has been confirmed by somebody else. But we have no way of knowing, and we're not, uh, we're the one, the taxpayers paying for everything. What would your friend Edgar Mitchell have been saying right now? Oh, I think he would be very uh, excited. And, and the fact that you mentioned him, I mean, that's just what I'm talking about. People of that era, they, they seem to wait until people die before they want to open any files. Um, but um, he would be glad that there's some progress. And, yes, there is progress. It's just... Would he be testifying? He might. Well, I mean, he would have been... A, he would be a good witness because, uh, you know, of his uh, his experience and his, his involvement and his research. Let's but, go to Chris in Alabama. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, thank you so much. Sure. For taking my call. I guess um, I don't mean to sidetrack or anything like that, but um, you have been on this show before, and you talked about uh, you know how TBIs or traumatic brain injuries, you know, can have a um, everlasting effect, you know, on an individual. I was just curious to how. That would apply if it does at all. I have no idea. To but what? The thing is, if it can apply. Um, apply to what? To what we're talking about now. I don't follow your question. Do you, Cheryl? I didn't understand what 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 I didn't understand what he said. Traumatic brain injuries, but oh, uh, I don't think he was um, tying it into the flights. I'm not quite sure either. But they're not going to let people fly who are oh, no, handicapped. No, this is not for everybody. This, this it's is, like a driver's license. You've yeah, got, there would got be very to... few people, you know, in the overall scheme of things, who would be, you know, potential clients because this is not something that would be appropriate for everybody. And uh, I think, you, you know, first of all, you have to be able to afford it. But the the price apparently is much lower than it was thought to uh, to that, that it would have been. Some time ago, uh, initially the word was that when these things came out, they'd be about two million dollars. You know, that's out of the range of just about everyone. Um, but now, 
250 to 300,000. It's out of the range of most of us um, who, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even be interested, wouldn't be uh, prospective clients. Michael in Kansas, you're up, Michael. Thank you for calling. Hi, George. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Um, Cheryl, yes, Trump was right, first of all. And uh, the late, great God Emperor of Dune, a.k.a. Rush Limbaugh, taught us that uh, automobiles are freedom machines. And anyone with eyes can see that uh, climate change is a lie and it's being used to eliminate our freedom machines. But my point I want to make to you guys is that uh, few people ever talk about this, but making things electric does not make a product better for the environment. You know, electricity has to be generated somehow. And uh, have you seen the minds of children in Africa that it takes to make, you know, the batteries and stuff? I just wondered what you guys thought about people equating uh, electric with uh, environmentally. Well, I've long been saying that uh, I think we're going through an Earth cycle. So our previous guest, of course, believes in man-made climate change. I think we're going through an Earth cycle. Cheryl, I don't know if you take a position with that. Well, it, it you know, we're all guessing at everything because we really don't know uh, the the real truth and uh, on, on all of these things that are going on around us. We just have to kind of go by what we know and what we can gather and, and uh, what we can learn about it. But... Yeah, it seems like everything goes in cycles. Um, yeah, electric has its downside too. You know, they do. They will be using the lithium batteries. Um, so we shall see what happens. Let's go to Michael in Tennessee. Happens to be a first-time caller for us. Hello, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me, man. My pleasure, Hi. my friend. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I have two types of questions about the Durrani H1. What would be the type of, of uh, license to acquire to be able to use this luxury vehicle? And what would be uh, features of the, uh, the Ronnie H1? Okay, it's a two-seater. It's, a, it's called a personal flying car or an EVTOL, E-V-T-O-L, and that is electric vertical takeoff and landing. And it is, uh, since it's, it's not an air taxi, it's not a cargo, uh, the, the uh, weight that it can handle is 500 pounds, and the range is about 60 to 100 miles, and it can go up to about an hour in flight. And then you can park it in a two-car garage. As far as the license, um, that's really amazing. It's, uh, you have to have a driver's license. And you need 20 hours of specific training, and uh, of that 20 hours, five hours is solo, and that's uh, on their facility. Now, there are other startup companies around, startup flying uh, car companies, and, you know, they all have their different, uh, different requirements. But all of this is uh, actually coming under the FAA, under the Light Sport Pilot Certificate, so... Uh, you just have to go through those steps and that training and pass everything and, uh, you know, uh, see where it goes. If, if, you're, if you're an interested pilot, that is. 
And, you know, it's entirely conceivable, too, Cheryl, that they're going to require more hours for that flight license. I would, I, I would think so. That's, that's what is required now in, in that one level from the FAA, the light sport pilot uh, certificate. Then there's the recreational, and then there's the private pilot. So there are different stages. But um, now hot air ballooning, for instance, was under the FAA. That required a written and a solo flight and, uh, uh, you know, hours. But that's a whole different ballgame. But you can be uh, – something can be under the FAA and not really require a pilot license, a regular pilot license. Let's go to Cornelius in Louisiana. Hello there, Mr. White. Hey, what's up there, Cheryl and George? Got to kind of caught you there, didn't we? Yeah, you caught me by surprise. Look, George and Cheryl – I want to talk about the hearing. I was just telling Tommy Danheiser, boy, I saw George Knapp just smile behind David Grush, and I hope y'all will get some of those pilots, that famous, uh, what is it, Black Aces uh, Navy pilot. Y'all need to get him. And I just want to give a quick shout-out. Big Jim in the big island of Hawaii. Aloha. So I had to give a big shout-out to Big Jim. But um, How's our buddy Barry doing? Oh, yeah, he's in rehab. So he's doing well. Thank you for praying for him. And my question for both of y'all, boy, I wish Art Bell was alive. I wish Dr. Lear was alive. And, of course, our friend Stan Freeman to see all of this. Well, George Knapp, I was on his program the other week, and he said one man's alien is another man's angel. So I believe that they're angels and stuff. So that's my perspective. All right, my friend. We're going to take a break pretty soon, Cheryl, and we'll come back and wrap things up with you on Coast to Coast AM. Cheryl, give out your website, if you would. Okay. That is my name, Cheryl Jones, and that's C-H-E-R-Y-L-L Jones, J-O-N-E-S, dot com. That's two L's. And if you miss that, folks, we've got it linked up at Coast to Coast AM dot com. Cheryl, do you take emails through that website? Uh, yes. Absolutely. All right. We will come back and wrap things up with Cheryl Jones and also pay tribute to a late guest, Kevin Mitnick. And welcome back, George Norrie, along with Cheryl Jones. Let's go to Marcy in San Diego. Marcy, go for it. Hi. Hi there. I think a lot of people might be afraid of this. I lived in a high rise in Hawaii the first time I was married, and they had an earthquake over there. And I was on the 19th floor, and that building started swinging big time. Oh, boy. And I've never been so scared in all my life. All of the blood drained out of my face. I just froze. Everybody else was running to the uh, elevator, but my husband I've been married to 40 years. He already owned this house, and it's on the ground, thank God. And, uh, and my brother bought a small plane and, and took my mom and I up. And I couldn't wait to get my feet back on the ground. I just think a lot of people might have a primal fear. And uh, I, I don't know why, but uh, if you put a cat in the car and you start driving, my God, they freak out. They have to be in an animal carrier. I think it's the same kind of primal fear. I think if man wanted to, I mean, if God wanted us to fly, <laughs> he'd be born with wings. He'd give us wings like angels, to be sure. Cheryl, you know what? That's a possibility. I'm not sure I would fly in a flying car. What about you? Well, I'm 
not either. I don't, I, you know, first of all, they're pretty expensive, but uh, it's not for everyone. There may be situations where it's really a good fit where other uh, aircraft can't accommodate, and uh, especially in emergency situations, as he mentioned, a doctor was using one or w- would like to use one. That- I, I don't know, but I'm still not sure we would ever do it. Cheryl, thanks for the report. Great job. We'll talk to you again next month. Folks, the world's famous computer hacker and the most wanted man on the FBI's list who then became a really good guy, Kevin Mitnick. We lost him almost two weeks ago. Kevin, does Bitcoin, can can somebody hack into that, Bitcoin and steal coins? Not through ransoming uh, companies, but literally straight into the Bitcoin system. Well, uh, there's been exchanges that have been compromised where people lost their Bitcoin. And also, I've, when I've been doing penetration testing work, because my company does ethical hacking work where companies hire us to test their security Yes. by, you know, by being the adversary, a simulated adversary. And we find that, you know, we found a number of employees at companies actually keep the credentials to access their Bitcoin wallet in, in, in like uh, stored in the Chrome browser, in, in, which is crazy. And in one case, I found a document on an employee's computer that had uh, that had their Bitcoin recovery key, which is 24 words. So if you lose your password and you need to get access to your Bitcoin, the recovery key is there. So people, unfortunately, have been a little bit sloppy when it comes to um, managing the credentials to access their wallets. So we see it all the time where people get, uh, get hacked, um, unfortunately. And one of the reasons people get hacked is they're not using uh, 2FA or what we call multi-factor authentication. So usually on many services today, as you know, George, can enable 2FA. So when you log in, not only do you need your login and password, you need to have a code. That's right. It could be text to you on your phone or it could be an app on your phone. What's interesting, and this is a fantastic, uh, this gives you fantastic insight into people's behavior, George, is Twitter came out with a report. And the report was between July 2020 and December 2020. So for a five-month five period, they found they analyzed all the Twitter accounts. And, of course, you know, there's, you know, there's a significant number of Twitter users. And only 2.3%, again, 2.3% enabled 2FA. That's, That's it. A very, very small percentage. Yep. So it gives you a little bit of insight. Uh, unfortunately, uh, people, you know, tend to be lazy, and when you're lazy, you can get caught with your pants down. So it's really important to uh, to protect yourself. I read a story today that uh, Jack Dorsey from Twitter is uh, going to be sued for billions over some investor situation. I haven't read that story, so I wouldn't know how to comment, unfortunately. Alleging that he misled but, them, so we'll see what happens there. Yeah, but, you know, when you have money— when you're a billionaire, if you're an Elon Musk, if you're Jack Dorsey, you know, you know, people sue you because they hope that you'll just settle out of court and you pay them a fee. And apparently so, they're going to settle for $800 million, apparently. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of well, money. That's a, little bit, that's a little bit more than John McAfee had. Yeah, it sure is. Let's take some calls here for you, Kev. Let's go to Jacques in Tacoma, Washington. Welcome to the program. Hey, Jacques, thanks for calling. Hey there, gentlemen. How are you tonight? Great. Thanks. I didn't actually even expect to get on, so I'm a little, a little stunned. Please forgive me. You did um, it. You made it. Yeah. Hey, nice. Um, 
Kevin, it's good to speak to you. Uh, it's been an interesting climate lately. Uh, the, the one thing that I wanted to actually ask you about, um, I come from uh, that that uh, crawling climate of MSPs. Uh, I, I got out of it a while ago, but a, a friend of mine still works in the MSP marina, and he's uh, working uh, network security for uh, um, government work in San Diego. Um, and there are a lot of new regulations the government just put in place. So, man, it's it's uh, phone books full. Um, but the question I had for you is, do you have any advice for the MSPs right now? Because the, the solar winds thing, oh, my God, it, that's a little terrifying. I mean, we're, we've got these other IT service providers out there. And, and then, you know, the last breach as well. We've got these IT service providers out there boasting their network security skills and saying, hey, we're going to take on a client. They take on these Fortune 500 and 100 clients, and then they get breached. Oh, yeah. And that just yeah, happened. A target region, man, we, we know what happened. I'm not going to talk about it, but we know what happened. By the way, are you the guy tweeting to me on Twitter right now? Because it's the same name. Um, anyway, MSPs are a target-rich environment. So, as you know, you, as you said, you know, you know about the solar winds attack. I believe, uh, if you remember, Casia, that Casia, uh, uh, I believe it was a, an RMM tool for remote management, and that was, uh, I believe, compromised through another type of supply chain attack. And the bad actors in this case were able to access. All the well, at least I think about fifteen hundred, two thousand customers. It's hard to remember without rereading the the press release. So yeah, if you're in an MSP environment, it's really important to have a good security program and good processes in place, security testing, of course, and really closing up those security gaps because you're definitely going to be a target. Kevin, when that phrase "bad actors" is used, and I've heard it uh, so many times, exactly what does that mean? That means uh, uh, a person that uh, is trying to cause you as a consumer or a business harm, an attacker, a criminal, a cyber, a cyber criminal. So it's just another term. Uh, you know, you, you, you read about these terms when you're reading SEC documents. Yeah. It's really the same thing. A bad actor, bad person, evil person, criminal. Uh, you know, it's pretty, uh, pretty similar. He may, he but, may be uh, an evil person, but a good actor, right? Could be. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a possibility. But, uh, yeah, it just means a bad guy. That's the best way to think about it. Let's go to Carl in Boston, Mass. Hey, Carl, thanks for calling. Hi, George. Thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. And, uh, how you doing? Um, anyway, I had a question. Uh, I was just wondering how, like, seriously advanced these computers are, these quantum computers, because my math that I did is 98,304. Uh, exchanges per nanosecond. The first number I got was 49,000, uh, some, uh, 49,152. Um, and, um, but I realized they do in and out. And, um, I guess I think it's per nanosecond that exchanges can happen. And then my next question is how many quantum computers are accessible to the public? And I know for a chiropractor of a processor, it's like 28K, and for a brand new one, it's 38K. So what is the danger in this accessibility? Thank you. Well, first of all, I, I haven't did a deep dive into quantum uh, technology, but I was unfamiliar that it's available really in the commercial realm. 
where I think about using quantum computing technology is really for cracking crypto because it gives us an opportunity to quickly put no, to derive a key um, to obviously get access to the plain text to the key material you know to, to get the material that's protected with a uh, with encryption but unfortunately I'm not familiar with uh, the commercial versions of quantum computing I didn't even know it existed. Okay, thanks, Carl. Appreciate you being part of the yeah. program. Kevin, since you've been in, uh, working for companies, have you been able to hack into everyone that they've hired you to hack into? Yeah, pretty much uh, since 2004, I started the company, Mythic uh, Security Consulting, and <laughs> with our team of engineers since 2004, in every security assessment that we've been hired to do that we're allowed to use social engineering and scope of the assessment. That What that means is where we could use uh, phishing attacks like we described earlier, or we could do pretext phone calls. And, and what is a pretext phone call? That's where you call somebody up over the telephone yep. and you pretend to be somebody you're not and you get them to reveal information or to do something. So when we're allowed to use that type of tradecraft, it's been 100% success rate of being able to breach a client. In some cases, we've been hired where we're, the focus was very narrow. It might be on a web application. Uh, web application, you know, think of a portal, George, like when you log on to Chase.com, for example. In some of those cases, we weren't able were able to find problems, but we weren't able to breach the bank. Does somebody ever have the capability of tying into some other country's nuke launching systems and controlling it? Can they do that? I haven't heard of it. Well, I've been accused of it, George, when I was uh, arrested back really? back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. I was accused of it. And actually, I don't know if you remember, but uh, a federal prosecutor at a bail hearing when I was arrested told the federal judge that not only did they have to hold me in custody as a national security risk, but they had to make sure I couldn't get access to a telephone. Because if I got access to a telephone, that I could call up the modems at NORAD, Northern Air Defense, and he actually said I could whistle into the phone and communicate with the modems and actually launch a nuclear weapon. And I started laughing in federal court because I'd never heard of something so stupid in my life. And uh, my attorney got really upset with me because you're never supposed to laugh when you're a defendant in federal court. But the judge unbelievably bought, bought the story. And I was actually held in solitary confinement oh my God. In, a federal detention, yeah, for a federal, in a federal detention center based on the threat that I could uh, launch a nuclear ICBM. Do I think it's really possible? Um, not remotely. I mean, unfortunately, I don't have much visibility into the, you know, into the technology that the president carries and, uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, I, I highly doubt that a foreign adversary would be able to launch a nuclear strike uh, uh, through, you know, hacking tradecraft. I, I, I don't think, well, Let's let me word it a different way. I hope it's not possible. I don't think it's possible, but I hope it's not possible. John in Kentucky, take it away, John. Hey, hey, George, how are you? Great, John. Blessed Thank to, you. Yeah, hear your voice, and I hope you have a good weekend coming up. I hear it's going to be fantastic. It's sold out, I, I think. I yeah, <laughs> Kevin, it's an honor to speak to you, and I'm a little peed off. I'm fifty some years old. I've been an online gamer forever. And I was wondering, how serious is the government taking these uh, people that codes uh, the online cheats, the streaming loaders that they sell, that they rent out or sub? Um, 
it's getting on on PC gaming. You know, it's been around since early millennium, pretty heavy. And I was just wondering if you get a 64 player server and you have, which is a gaming server, and every goes everybody goes out and buys a 60 per se hundred or hundred dollar game. Isn't that a criminal offense for that person making those online codes? Um, like if you go steal in some states $500, you're, that's considered a felony. So how is that not considered a felony? Well, if, unfortunately, if I'm not an attorney, uh, so I wouldn't know how to answer that, that uh, question. But I haven't heard of any prosecution for any – attacker let's let's say uh do you know in the gaming field where they're doing cheat sheets to cheat a game i haven't i haven't read about that uh and usually i keep my ear close to the ground on on computer crime type cases so unfortunately uh i wouldn't know how to answer your question because i'm not familiar with the laws on, on this particular subject Kevin, since you've been doing this, of course, uh, and it's been a number of years now, what has been for you personally the most satisfying ap- uh, aspect of what you do? Helping my clients, helping helping the world, uh, you know, helping businesses, you know, uh, protect their assets from from again the bad actors out there. So I really take you know per- personal satisfaction. And I kind of wear two hats, George. Uh, you know. I, I run a, uh, a company, like I mentioned before, that does security testing. So that's where we get to wear the offensive hat. And in the security community, it's called like a red hat. You know, it's like you're a red teamer because you're doing offensive work. And then on the other side of the coin, I'm part of a company uh, that was founded, you know, about 10 years ago called Before, K-N-O-W-B-E-4. And this is where we help companies defend against Exactly the same type of attack you mentioned earlier, phishing, and this is uh, where we focus on helping businesses mitigate social engineering attacks through security awareness training and simulated phishing. So what we actually do is we have a platform that companies could you know, access where they could do phishing attacks on their own employees. And rather than getting you know, ransomware or having their passwords stolen and that sort of thing, if they end up falling for the fish, well, they have to watch a training video. And most likely that training video is going to be me <laughs> training them. Oh, I love hey, it. You, you, made, you made a mistake. <laughs> that wasn't real. You know, and trying to help, trying to hold that person's hand to try to help educate them as to what the real threat's out there. Because people, you know, they're, they're trying to do their, you know, they're, they're basically focused on doing, you know, carrying out their job responsibilities on a day-to-day basis. They're not thinking about being victimized by an attacker. So this is not something people are used to you know, seeing. So what we try to do is educate people and raise their awareness so when a real attacker, come, when a real attacker comes and sends a phishing attack, hopefully the person is going to step back and think smarter before complying. Kevin Mitnick will be missed. For Adam Thompson, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galanti, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean LaDesor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burroughs, Tim Banal, Ryan Stacey, Ian Punnett, and George Knapp. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.